0: Acts 21 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater, the Berean, son of Pheras, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story ...and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos... ...intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us in Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, he came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we went and touched Samos, and the next day after that, went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia... For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is God's word, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we again on your day in your house ask for your help with your word as we have them open in our laps. We ask you to open our Bibles to our head and our heart. Be our teacher. Make us good students. Help us to understand, and then help us to obey. I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, we're at chapter 20 already. There's 28 chapters total. We've got a ways to go, but we've come a long way. Chapter 20 serves as a bridge between Paul's third missionary journey, which he wrapped up at the conclusion of chapter 19, and a transition between that third missionary journey and his final recorded trip to Jerusalem. That was a big deal, but then he's going to make his way to Rome, just not the way he had intended. He will leave as a prisoner. Uh, Luke's description of this passage that we just read is not as action-packed as some of them that have preceded or those that are ahead. It gives considerable attention To temporal and spatial details, ports of call, layovers, itineraries, names of those involved, along with a few details of what took place along the way. This all sounds like the stuff you would expect to read if you were reading a travel journal of some sort. And the use of the word we, if you notice that, we went away from the we chapters ago where Luke was with Paul as he's recording this. Now he's back with Paul. He can say we. So Luke is with this entourage and it signifies an eyewitness account. So all those places that you've probably never heard of and if we got our, our Bible maps out we might be able to decode uh, where in present day we're talking about in you know f- first century but along with these things that, and the details we are given a glimpse into the day to day rough and tumble of Paul's ministry. Uh, We're able to kind of peer in and see how he did what he did. There's not a lot here as far as that sort of thing. Sometimes Luke's purpose is to tell us exactly what's going on. Other times he just kind of flies right through. And there are a few firsts found here, most notably an explicit reference to the church meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week. Because back in the garden... Before anything was, there were six days of creation. God rested on the seventh. And then later, when the Ten Commandments and all were given, remember the Sabbath day. And then at some point, it goes from Sabbath to Sunday. We don't know when that happened, but this is the first record of it seemingly being a pattern. We can talk about that. There's also the mention of another plot against Paul's life, likely involving the disposal of his body at sea, so that there'd be no evidence as to where he went. And it was by the Jews, not the Romans, not yet. All the heat's coming from his own people. We'll see that change as Rome gets involved in the chapters to come. But even so, there are many commentaries, many scholars, many pastors, many laymen Sunday school teachers that readily admit the predicament one faces in trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with this? We've got this lovely sandwich of details, 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 and then a long sermon and a boy falling out the window, and then details, 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 details. But there's nothing said by Luke to try to contextualize or give us what it means to stick that story in the middle of this travel log, as if to just say, hey, this is real stuff. This is a real ministry, real history, real people. And on this night, this wonderful thing happened that no one who was there will ever forget. So we'll let you in on that. But two heavily detailed paragraphs, a captain's log, as it were, with a story of a long-winded sermon with a tragic accident that all turns happy, and the ending sandwiched between the two. Now, I have heard preachers use this text as a means to warn congregations Of the dangers of sleeping through sermons. That's not why this was written. So you won't hear that from me. But I have heard congregants. Go on and on. As far as pastors. And this passage is a warning. For preaching too long. That bad things might happen. That again is not the reason why this is here. So with that out of the way. What we'll do is try to understand what's going on here pick through what we've got and then try to at least take a stab at perhaps what Luke's trying to leave with us if this isn't spelled out then maybe it's adrift we'll see if we can catch it so if we go back to verse 1 in chapter 20 after the uproar ceased that connects us with the previous episode in Ephesus where for two hours in the theater the town rioted Screaming, great is Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis, depending on which translation you've got. Same false god. When that is done, it says Paul sent for the disciples. Maybe he was out of dodge and in hiding and now the dust is settled and he's calling the disciples in. And after encouraging them, we'll come back to that later. The word encourage means to give courage. Uh, when one needs courage, that's the that's the thing about encouragement. Um, it's for people who are suffering, or worn out, or depressed, or at the end of the rope. That's what he's doing. He said farewell to them after encouraging them and departed for Macedonia. So there's your first geographical location pin on the map. When he'd gone through those regions, which regions? The ones in Macedonia. And had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. That's where he found this plot against him. Then he decided, I like that, he decided God's moving, but he's using his brain. That's the way it works in real life. There's no, not often, stuff written in the sky when I walk out of the house in the morning. Isaac, this is what I want you to do. You find that in his word. And you find that within the responsibilities of your family and your sphere of influence, so on and so forth. But to kind of speed this up, just for sake of of time, but making sure we don't leave anything unturned, there's a list of names. uh, And I don't know if I'm pronouncing these correctly. How should I know? I've got a cheat button on my computer where you can hit the little microphone and someone with an accent will say them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But so Pater accompanied him. That'd be Paul. And then Aristarchus, Secundus, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus. If you add Luke, what are we doing? Counting seven together? And then maybe in the next paragraph, we add a couple more, and we've got nine. But these went on ahead and were waiting for us. Troas is where they're going. That's one last church. And then we sailed away. There's that we. So, at least Luke is on a boat uh, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So, they travel by different means. Maybe they split up for a purpose. We're not told. But they all gather together after five days apart to spend seven days In Troas. So the following that uh, I guess you'd call it study material, recess and study material again. It's seven days stay and all that we read in that paragraph takes place during the first day of the week which was the last day that he stayed with them. We read that in verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. That's why we know they're having church. This is the Lord's Supper. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So he's making the best use of the time they have together. So what we'll do is just kind of look at the rest of this, um, kind of like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you ever do this with your kids. You open your Bibles and you play detective. What's here? Pull the stuff out. Look at the pieces. What do they say? What do they mean? Put them back together. Maybe you can figure it out. Well, at least these things can be said. First, it was an evening service or meeting. How do we know that? It doesn't say so. Well, because it would be very hard to be preaching at midnight if you started at lunch or earlier, wouldn't it? And as far as the culture where these people worked, they didn't have weekends off. They worked all the time, especially if you weren't a big shot. So, likely, this took place at sunset, which is when the workday would end, and most of these people likely worked. So, this was when they would gather. Now the, I can remember listening to sermons, red faced blowhards, whatever you want to call them, just pounding. No work on Sundays. Well, he's working on Sunday. The guy who's red faced and all mad about it, right? One of those things in my head as a kid it doesn't work. My dad works on Sunday. Um, these people met when they could, and and that's this thing with the, the first day of the week. Now that was Resurrection Day, and it seemed to over time become a universal thing for Christians. Likely, it was a very practical thing to start with, especially away from Jerusalem. Uh, and many of them went to the synagogue on Sunday, or Saturday, and then they'd go to meet together with the church on Sunday. But it was when they could get this done, and it was likely in the evenings. Um, Second, the meeting was held in a private building, specifically on the third floor. That'll come in later. Third, there were many lamps burning for light, Luke tells us, such that it might make for stuffy ambiance. You have to imagine this because we don't live in this world, but there's no air conditioning. Uh, There are no vehicles, at least the type that would use fossil fuels. You feed your vehicles in those days. Uh, Their travel was limited. Their mechanism for lighting a room after hours was limited. They did not have uh, clean burning fuels for that. It would be forever before they would start killing whales and taking the oil out of their skulls because that was an improvement over what they had. What they had was olive oil. Have you ever cooked with that and get it too hot? N- not a nice smell. Or once the fire alarms start singing too, you know, it's bad. If you didn't have olive oil, they would use lard. It's even worse because it smells like you burnt the steak. But this was how they would light the area. So imagine it's late. Maybe they've hit the dew point. I don't know. These lamps are blowing smoke and adding heat. And there's this kid in a window trying to get a breath of fresh air. At least that's probably the reason why he's in that position. Fourth, even though referred to as a young man in verse 9 with a specific Greek word, the specific word used in verse 12 is more specific and usually covers ages from 8 to 14. So he was a young man. Emphasis on the young. I don't consider that to be a man, though he may have had his bar mitzvah. Who knows if he's Jewish. Fifth, the impression Luke gives of a protracted struggle with sleepiness seems assuredly to clear Paul of any blame. This kid was, was putting up a good fight. Um... Sixth, Luke, as a physician, we, we see this in what he writes in his gospel. He's the one that describes Mary as being great with child, and Jesus is sweating great drops of blood from his brow. Even in the, uh, the things said about his crucifixion, they seem to come from a medical uh, vocabulary, and the same is true here. There's no way that Luke's going to try the, to hint with what he's saying here Uh, And we can, I think, surely dismiss the often thought possibility that the boy was not dead or as you might put it, mostly dead. Uh, He was all the way dead because that requires an all the way miracle, which is the way everyone is all the way very comforted at the end. So one might imagine and and this is where, you know, it's tough sometimes, especially when we're familiar with our Bibles to read our bibles as if it's just bible land and things are different in bible land back in history than they are now but if you if you most of us would have to imagine the the chaos and confusion that would instantly explode when it's known that this boy has fallen out the window while this man is preaching on his last night. That's why we're here, because we want to make the most of our time with Paul the Apostle. And this tragedy takes place. So there may be some that would know personally the horror of this type of tragedy, losing a son or a daughter. But most of us, we have no reference point for this type of thing. So we're kind of, as guests, looking in on on what happens. And it, it seems to follow like we might expect. Paul was among them outside, down below. We would assume everyone quickly runs down the steps or whatever means to get down to see if the boy's okay. He's not okay at all. And it's almost as if Luke might want us to conjure memories from the Old Testament because this sounds a lot like Elijah and Elisha with the widow's son or the Shunammite woman's son, where there's a problem, but they're healed. And what we are given to color our imagination um, is that he's dropped to his knees, is bending over, takes the boy in his arms, and then assures everyone that he's not lost. Now, I would think that the reaction to that would vary. There's some that's going to believe it instantly. There's others that's going to... I'll see about that. I'm sure most are speechless, if not crying. But the boy's okay. And I'd love to have more of the story. We're not given much. Um, The boy's alive as a result of a miracle of God. So they all go home. No. They go back upstairs. At least a number of them, because... That's what we read. And, and there are those that argue the insensitivity of, of Paul and others at the thought of them eating and conversing afterward until morning. But I would argue something totally different, just off of whatever experience I have to show for myself in the life as I've lived it. But I'd argue the impossible notion of anyone capable of sleep after such an event and the unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime demonstration of the power and presence of God that night. Never was there such a more memorable message, communion, and meal as the night the fortunate son, that's what his name meant, fell from the window and then came back upstairs and ate his dinner. It, it, it's almost, uh, what do they call that? Fantastic. Fantastic's a nice word to say. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's, that's not true. But if we believe Genesis 1-1, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this is no problem. And Paul's been doing this all over. And the result is always the same for the encouragement of those that witness it. It's never for the encouragement of the one that suffered it. Maybe we'll come back to that later. But what's it like for a boy to get a glimpse of heaven and then have to come back? Wait a minute. You ever been woken from a dream that you were enjoying? Some dreams are not enjoyable. Some, you wonder if you're right in the head as a result of your dream. But some of them are, are good. Corey's not in here. She's keeping the children. But I can remember many mornings at breakfast where she would tell me about a dream about her mother after she was gone. And she said, they never last long enough. But I can smell, smell, hear things and see things. She said, I don't know what to think of it other than the Lord maybe thinks I need it. But that's not a trip to heaven and back. But I think this boy, along with Lazarus, uh, I I think that's what we've got a case for. So, all that said and done, there's no hint that Paul took the incident as a rebuke for long-windedness. Nor were the people troubled by the meeting's length. They were eager to learn and only had a short while before his departure. And I wrote down, it was an evening of great significance for the church at Troas. Paul had taught them. They had together observed the Lord's Supper. They had witnessed the dramatic sign of God's presence and power. And little wonder, Luke says, that they were greatly comforted. And then on the heels of that, we go back to the ship's log. Look at it, verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we, so Luke's there. But maybe he's split up with Paul because it's different set sail for Assos, intending they're making plans to take Paul aboard there for he so had arranged intending himself to go by land I couldn't find anybody even speculate as to the purpose for that Um, some was saying maybe he's still carrying that offering to be delivered you don't want to check that in the ship's hold (laughs) you might not get it when you get back but then there's others that would say well you wouldn't walk alone on foot um it's, it's useless to speculate. Um, I don't know if there's anybody else in the room like me. Sometimes you just want to drive your own truck. Any of you get car sick riding with other people, but you don't want to tell them you get car sick riding with them because they drive different than others, drive different than you. Some of you are smiling. This wasn't car sickness. Maybe you just wanted some fresh air. And when we met, when he met us, so they're all together again, us, us, we took him on board, and then uh, you got a few more stamps here, Um, one town, two town, three town, four. Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia if he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul's in a hurry. That's not new. We see that all the time. Um... He's a man on a mission, (laughs) if there ever was one. Now, that may have had to do with the weather, because best we can tell, it's at the time of year where the winds are beginning to change. And there's kind of a period between the good sailing and the bad sailing with an intermittent wind that blows during the day, and then you must anchor during the night because it drops out and you can drift. So, for whatever that's worth, that might be behind what's happening. But whatever the case, the paragraph transitions from this week in Troas with this monumental Bible study the last night before he departs where Paul addresses the local church to Miletus where next week we're going to see him address pastors, elders of the church in Ephesus. He doesn't go through Ephesus. He calls those leaders from Ephesus to meet him in a neutral territory before he's off to Jerusalem With limited time. Again. What do we do with this? Here's my best shot. Okay. Um, You can call these points. I just call them observations. But there's a few things that you can see shine through here. That are a little, if ever so nuanced, different than what we've seen so far. So far in Acts, we've seen Paul as an evangelist. Wherever he is, he's talking to lost people, Jews or Gentile. And he's doing the same thing. He's teaching that the Christ is Jesus. This Galilean carpenter is the fulfillment of all the prophecies from our old book. He's him. And there's no other way to be saved. That was his singular message. In this case, though, first thing we observe is we see Paul more pastorally because we've seen him speaking to a church and then next week speaking to church leaders and this whole tour of the, the earlier spots for the purpose of encouragement now we've seen Paul kind of uh, weigh into some folks, no survivors but in this case we, we see parts of him that we might not expect to see um Having completed his missionary journeys, Paul the pastor revisits the old battlegrounds, the place of old difficulties, but mainly to build up and encourage those who had believed. I don't think for a minute that this was some type of publicity backtrack with back padding and photo ops and cheesy grins. These people are going to take heat in the coming decades and generations. Some of them are already being pulled in different directions by people from without and people from within. He's going to warn these fellows on a beach next week when we finish this chapter. But instead of just you know, trying to say some things to lift their spirits, he's redrawing the target on the wall. This is why we're here. This is what we're doing. This is what I've been through and God has blessed and he'll carry you through. That it, it, it's an encouragement tour. And if we notice at every turn, we see that's what he was doing. So we see Paul as a pastor. The people he brought to faith are going to need courage. They would need to know the word to keep on keeping on. Again, that's next week. We also see Paul's affections. Kind of want to think of him as a crusty dude, right? Um, John the Baptist like. Uh, read over that part where, okay, first missionary journey was great, second one, we're getting ready. Uh, John Mark's out. What do you mean he's out? Says Barnabas. Oh, he, he broke our backs last time. I'm not going to put up with it this time. He's family. I don't care. And you know we sorted through that. The later in his life brings him back. He's He's useful to me. He's useful to all of us. He wrote one of the Gospels. He wasn't a good itinerant missionary. But he's a great author, storyteller, historian, writer. So we see his affections. And it's noteworthy that Paul hardly ever traveled alone. And when he was alone, such as here... And a couple of other places. He voices his longing for companionship. You come to me. I'll meet you here. But it's, it's not like alone was the purpose. It'd be if it were me. I need to breathe. Get away from me. I'm going on vacation. See you all later. I don't think it's that way. Uh, all the names that, that are read here. are hard to pronounce. We don't know them. But they signify Paul's conviction regarding spiritual giftedness. That God joins the body and that they're all needed. They're not a full functioning body without each other. Um, Let's see what else. I've written down, he's not a one man band. And we see it at the end of every letter as he profusely, tenderly thanks a whole list of people. Uh, in one case, he's, he's telling a guy to, to, to say hello to his mother. Um, evidently, the, the lady treated him like a son or something like that. You ever, you ever find something like that where there's more affection than you think you deserve, but it's freely given? Well, he's thanking people for this. This is the story of a man who's going to spend every last second with the people he loves until that time is gone and he must go. You see that with the late night. We need each other, I think is what this passage says. Because if anybody should have arrived and not need anybody else, it'd be Paul, but he's the one pulling people toward him rather than fleeing. And then we see Paul team building. Um... Even the Apostle Paul, shockingly enough, couldn't be everywhere and do everything at the same time. Um, He wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't omnicompetent. Ever heard that before? Omnicompetent. There's no such thing. (laughs) Same in Athens and his final imprisonment. If we don't notice that he was seemingly always about the business of selecting and preparing others to replicate his actions so that they could replace him when the time came, we're reading Acts wrong. That's what he's doing all along. These are the people. He's identifying gifts. He's enabling their usefulness. And then he's going on somewhere else to do the same thing for someone else. So what we read here is he's not doing this alone by himself. Now I'm putting these things together last night after having spent a week reading and you know sometimes the best thing you can do is just read the text and circle all kinds of stuff. And then you read what other people say and you try to find something. And then you listen to what other people say when they preach having done those other two things already. And then at the end if... It still seems like, uh, where's the rabbit in this hat to pull out come Sunday morning? (laughs) What do you do with all this? And that's good stuff. Paul's a pastor. Paul's affections. Paul's team building. But these, it's probably just because of where I've been in the past few weeks. But this type of stuff, I think, was pressed into my head like no other time before, uh, just because being involved in the funeral of a parent. Uh, it's kind of your reality check that your perception of time is off. It's going very quickly. And you don't have much time left yourself. Whippersnapper, whatever you call yourself, when you talk to yourself. Um, and I haven't been here very long. It's not even five years yet. It feels like a long time. But... It takes time to assess giftedness, facilitate the use of those gifts to help people network and to work your own strategy for working yourself out of a job. That's going to happen. I hope it's here. I hope that there's a day where it'll be like Ross's last Sunday or my father's last Sunday and it'll be somebody else. I hope we get to overlap where we get to, like, trade a lot of notes. But it's coming. I'll need to do that. I'll need to assess giftedness, facilitate its usefulness, replicate what I've been doing and others, and then get out of the way and let somebody else do it. That's the way this is designed to work. And you see Paul doing this ahead of time. Paul's pre-planned his funeral. I didn't know what that kind of stuff's like. pre-planned dads by two days (laughs) because he left quicker than we thought and uh, mom's working on some notes and we're going to pre-plan hers she said I would have pre-planned ours both but your father kept saying the trumpet's going to blow and we're going to waste our money (laughs) and she would say we're going to need the money anyway and he would say well I'm not sure all our kids are saved that was a joke they might need it you know but do you see that that stuff in here? Um, that it takes time to say, hey, you're good at this. And I don't think it's an accident. And you seem to enjoy it. Why don't we see what will happen if we use this and work as hard as we can for the glory of the Lord? Until the time's up. And then somebody else can have a turn. But if we don't look at it like that, then who's going to be qualified by the time... The change order is necessary. Or it comes quicker than we should expect, as it would with Paul. Paul's the example of having been prepared. Maybe he was the first Boy Scout. I don't know. But we have an example here. I've heard it said, if you want a ministry to be short-lived, start it by yourself, do it by yourself, and share authority with no one but yourself. But here's the dumb thing about all that. We know that won't work, but we like it anyway. We like our Bible man on a pedestal, don't we? Don't we? He knows it all. We'll let him do what he does, and we'll sit back and we'll learn. No one wants to climb up on a pedestal, too, and a pedestal's not fair in the first place. There's only one pedestal, and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is on that. The rest of us are dirt, saved by grace, and we're shocked that he even uses in the first place. But we like it that way. We're attracted to that type of ministry, even though we know it's total garbage. No one-man band ever works. Because it's not about one man, unless that one man is Jesus Christ. Here's what 2 Timothy 2 2 says. Paul wrote this, and he wrote it to one of these guys on this trip later. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men. Now, you'll need a faithful man. But when you have faithful men, entrust it to them who will be able to teach others also. How do we know about this story? Because of what Paul did. Finding faithful men and entrusting them to tell the story to others. So with the help of... uh, G. Campbell Morgan, here's here's what I see in this passage, if you were to take what we've done so far and kind of condense it, maybe tie a bow around it. By the time we get to chapter 20, and perhaps we'll see it even more clearly next week when we finish up chapter 20, we're able to see this man, Paul, who so far has been absolutely, totally wide open, pedal to the metal. But you look at little snippets along the way, and he looks quite laid back. Now y'all probably know enough about life that there's temperaments, there's A types and B types. Usually you're wide open or you're laid back, but you usually don't see both, do you? I think we see both here. How so? Well it's easy to see his restlessness. That that's where, you know, he can't sit still, not while the lost haven't heard that Jesus is the Christ, never able to stay anywhere. For long, wherever he lands, so much to do, so a little time to do it in. And now we're hearing the ringings of his soul where he, he says, And I also must see Rome. Which would be like saying, I'm not going to stop till I get to the capital. Caesar is my final audience. And he's going to get it, but not the way he, he thought. But that, that's his mentality and his mindset. But then again, it might actually be easier if you slow down the frames to see Paul's restfulness. And how can a guy like that who's so driven rest? Because he was a man mastered by Christ. There's no other way to do it. Um, If you turn in the back to your maps and look at the crisscrossing thousands of miles by land and sea, the whole story could be written by six words. For me to live is Christ. And when you've got that settled, like he had that settled, you can be running 100 miles an hour with your hands behind your head as chill as you can be. Because he knows how this ends. And nothing's going to happen that's going to bother him. Now, not to say that he doesn't get bent out of shape, fire people that will eventually write a gospel. Call them back later because he he needs some help with something he's writing. Don't don't for a minute think that uh, he doesn't have the stuff usually attached to wide open people. But what about this story? Why is he staying there all night? How many A-listed speakers do you know who would spend the last night of their time in a specific town speaking till midnight? To a group of people. Whoever would show up. And then to run down the steps. To take a dead boy in his arms. Bring him back to life. And then. Well guys. It's been great. But I gotta go. He stays with them talking till the morning. I mean there's a lot to talk about. I'm wondering if they talked about what the kids saw. For the fraction of time it took Paul to run down the steps. While he's in glory. I don't know. But it would have been fascinating to be there. That's where he is. So wherever he would light, even if he's a buzzing fly, he felt and absorbed and was aware of the the moment. He would speak to a crowd. He would speak to one woman at a river. The Lord opened her heart that she might believe. So this restfulness over against a restlessness is, is... Mind boggling. A man who is mastered by Christ is able to master his circumstances. I think that's the the key to that riddle. Once you're mastered by Christ, well, you're on his mission, right? But at the same time, all circumstances are manageable. Adversity or prosperity, he's able to press into service for his Lord whatever comes his way. Though never able to stay long, he was sensitive to the immediate need wherever he went. Every moment the local atmosphere moved him. If he had not been there that night, they would have missed one unforgettable epic Bible study. But he was there with them. And then back to the poet, the poor boy. The first question I'd ask, did you talk with Lazarus? Y'all in the same boat? Fill us in. This is a quote from... G. Campbell Morgan, to have life's fitful fever dismissed by the healing touch of the master's hand is at the same moment to feel the thrill and the throb of his compassion driving us forevermore toward new endeavors. And Paul would do this till they took off his head. No retirement. Now, again, uh, 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 maybe at some point I'll be able to sort and understand some of what I experienced over the past few weeks, it'll take time, and I'm particularly fond of of the advice some of you gave me, That, that business about time healing all pain, it's garbage it doesn't work that way, it'll hurt until you meet him again but it's a teacher and you'll learn some things this made me think, you know, this, this life's fever, dismissed by the healing touch of the Master's hand. My daddy died, but he's more alive than he's ever been. He's been healed eternally. My mother-in-law healed eternally. My mother, she's still here. She's healed temporarily, still has cancer. Um, <laughs> You want to just put it as, as honest as we can. The very worst thing that could happen to any of you is that you're going to die, and it's going to happen to every last one of you. We're all going to die. So how shall we live? And when you've observed something like happened the night this boy fell out of the window, I think I'm with Morgan. The same moment you feel the thrill and the throb of his compassion driving us from evermore toward new endeavors. Other people have to know about this. They have to know about this. How are you going to live without this? How are we going to live without it? And then I thought of something that I heard on a bus in Israel. Israel didn't have anything to do with it. It was just on a tour bus when it happened. But I was sitting next to a guy I had gotten to know and had... Learned to appreciate, uh, and since then even more. But he said something. He's a little younger than my father, older than me. Um, I'd say now he's in his mid-60s or so. But he had had a door shut as far as ministry. Time's over, that's done, now what? And what looked like a viable open door to something he'd never done before, but it it was a big deal. And he said to me, I've wrestled with this because for some dumb reason in my ignorance and youth, I thought that at some point when I learn enough about the Bible and I've had enough experience in ministry, this should get easier. And I'll be able to make decisions like smart people do or holy people do. And this is a professor speaking in like layman's terms which kind of takes you back when you're used to hearing you know professor and he said that's when it dawned on me that i have had it backward all my life shouldn't the leaps of faith be at the point of our experience or our ignorance He said, the older i get should those steps of faith shrink it gets easier i need less faith Or is the Lord going to continue to stretch me until I see his face? So the last decisions I may make are the greatest steps of faith. I said, I don't know. You tell me. He said, it's the latter. I'm going to take this step of faith because I don't know what else to do. And I'm not going to go back. I'm not worn out. So I'm going to keep trucking. And it was a brilliant move, and it's done well. But I just thought, that, that's nuts. Because if I had to lay the blame on any altar, it would be the altar of our culture's customary thought that we all deserve to retire at some point when we're worn out or when we've paid our dues or something like that. And as far as your employment goes, I think that fits but as far as your calling and your election which Paul says we must make sure and live worthy of I don't think we ever retire I think even after the gifts you once possessed are long gone even visits from those who knew you in a day earlier who were blessed by your ministry or whatever can continue to be blessed even through your memory after you're gone. So what am I trying to say? I'm dancing around dropping a bomb. Nobody laughed. Maybe just tenderness from the weeks prior, but folks, I really believe that this church in the past several years, has been going through an adjustment phase. One, because of an epidemic that shook everything up. We got through that pretty easy because we had a live stream mechanism and you folks love each other. How's a pandemic going to separate us when that's the case? They're not. But since then, things have been different. And it's not like we're not bringing in new people. We had a room full upstairs in our membership class. But we have less hands to do the work. Ordinary work. We're busier than we were. We're a growing church that's canceling programs. Because we can't find people to do it. Now, I have more gray hair than I had when I got here. And I'm wondering if I won't have more when I get home. Because I don't like saying things like this. But folks, I think we've had the perfect passage to have us think to ourselves... Are we laid back? Are we wide open? Can we be both? Now take this from my heart because it's where it's coming from. But I'm thinking seriously about going back to Titus this summer. That's the book that we started with. Only because I'm not the same guy that taught it to you four and a half years ago and you're not the same church that listened to it. Well, we got to figure something out because that's the book that's going to tell us who does what and when and how. If you have retired from your service at this church because you feel as though you've lost energy, or there should be others who could do it, and I know everybody says, "Say it's children's ministry." If you've got kids, you should worry about that. No, we don't know anything about raising kids. We just got them. You're the ones that know about raising kids. You successfully launched them from your nest and survived it. Ladies, who's going to hold these babies in their arms in the nursery and weep over the possibility of their choosing shipwreck over salvation? That's definitely their option. Us young people are too busy with options to worry about that disaster. Who's going to whisper into their ears the truths that can save their souls? We need you. I need you. Yes, the young people need to be trained. But we need somebody who's got some sense to train them. And since most of the world that's my age has lost their minds, I'm hoping there's still some people with age in this room that still have some to give to me. I need it. And our children need it. And these people that want to join this church need it. It does take a village. And there is no such thing as retirement. So, I thought about saying this last night. I got up this morning and said, you're crazy. And then I said it. (laughs) So, we're going to study Titus in the summer, I'm thinking. And we'll let that be the guide. We'll let that be the pressure. We'll let Paul twist the arms. We'll let the Holy Spirit have his way. But that will be the reason. Because somehow, some way, we've got to place a value on this church's training of the next generation such that we are willing to do something drastic. It's called sacrifice. Something has to get cut out for that to get put in. I'm not asking for it. I'm asking you to read your Bibles and see what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do but if we continue to be the church that everyone around this church talks about to others and how wonderful it is, it's going to have to be where Jesus is bigger and we are smaller. And that goes down to our schedules. I'm not looking for perfect attendance. I'm not looking for you to do anything you don't want to do. I'm only looking for you to do what God gifted you to do. That's His business. He expects it. And uh, nothing thrills my soul than watching people use their gifts for God's glory. Again, he gets bigger and we get smaller. Well, that said, and before the bullets fly, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for a uh, what the world would consider a madman named Paul who would spend his the wee hours of the morning taking whatever you put in his head and transferring it to the heads of others. And not in some robotic, uh, personless or senseless self, but a man with emotions who speaks of them as he recalls the names of the people he met along the way. Lord, we need encouragement from your word, but from each other too. Love us through each other. And Lord, may we prepare who's going to take our place for your glory, for your good. We ask this in your name. Amen.